How many of you clap? How many of you know what chat GBT is? There are things, and everyone in the audience should know this, there are things coming down the pipeline on the artificial intelligence front that are just going to make your hair stand on end within the next year. Because there is so much transformation going on in that domain. And, and that's been the case particularly for the last six months that it's, it's almost unimaginable. I figure a third of the universities will go broke in the next five years. So I'll tell you what Chad GPT is just so you know, because you need to know this. And I don't know what sort of technological revolution this is. It's smarter than you. This is a big deal. So this AI system, it's a general language processing model, was released about a week ago, a week and a half ago. And uh, I, I went and interacted with it. You can, it's an AI system, artificial intelligence system. It basically is trained on, well, a massive corpus of, of spoken and, or of text. So it's derived its models of the world from the analysis of human speech, essentially. It, it isn't using real-world data yet, but that will be happening certainly within the next year. And ChatGPT analyzes a very large corpus of text, and that corpus is growing all the time. Now, it's already sophisticated enough. I went on to it last week, and I said, okay, some of you know I, I've written these books, 12 Rules for Life, and then Beyond Order, 12 More Rules, because, you know, you can't have enough rules. And I asked it, this is what I asked it to do. I said, write me an essay that's a 13th rule for beyond order, written in a style that combines the King James Bible with the Tao Te Ching. That's pretty difficult to pull off, you know? Any one of those things is hard. The intersection of all three, that's impossible. Well, it wrote it in about three seconds, four pages long, and it isn't obvious to me, for better or worse, that I would be able to tell that I didn't write it. Right, right, and okay, and that's pretty impressive, but the fact that it could do that grammatically perfectly, right, and quite impressive philosophically, I also had it write an essay on the intersection between the Taoist version of ethical morality and the ethics that are outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, which it just nailed, got that dead right, Br brilliant. Again, it took it about three seconds. There was a, a computer engineer who purported to work for Tesla. He asked GPT, chat GPT, said, look, I work for Elon Musk, but I haven't been doing much for the last week, so I need you to write me 10 bullet points about what I probably would have done as a, as a engineer at Twitter, what 10 things did I do last week that were productive and valuable? And, oh, if you don't mind, write me the accompanying computer code that goes with each project. And it did that too, three seconds, and the computer code works. Right, and so, okay, so that's, that's already there. So then a university professor did this. He thought, oh, that's interesting. Any student will be able to write any essay on any topic with chat GPT. And, uh, Someone gave it an SAT, by the way, and it scored about as well as the average student in a well-functioning public university. So that's how smart it is. So that's basically an IQ test. He said, write me an essay, gave it a topic, wrote the essay. He said, now grade it. Said, if we can automate the students, we should be able to automate the professors too. And so it provided a complete comprehensive analysis of its own essay with grade. It wrote a... Someone else asked it, 
Write the screenplay and describe the characters for the next $900 million Hollywood blockbuster. It's like, bang, plot, characterizations. Then someone else took the descriptions of the actors and said, generate computer, photorealistic computer images for each actor. And all the AI systems could do that. So I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next. This is going to happen this year. So get ready. Okay, so now we have an AI model that can extract a model of the world from the entire corpus of language. All right, and it's, it's smarter than you. And it's going to be a hell of a lot smarter than you in two years. So you can get ready for that too. But it's not that smart yet because it's just a humanities professor at the moment. It doesn't test its linguistic knowledge against the real world. That's what a scientist does, right? You come up with a theory that's linguistically predicated and then you throw it against the world and see if it sticks. And then the world tells you whether or not your linguistic construction is valid. But the new AI systems will be able to extract out patterns from the world itself, from images and so forth, and then be able to test their linguistic constructions against the world. And so they'll practice just like scientists. And the most advanced models are going to use text and image and action as well because they'll build a model human action and so and all of that's going to come down the pipes within the next year so hang on to your hats ladies and gentlemen because what did my friend Jonathan Pajot say giants are going to walk the earth once more and we're going to live through that in Elon Musk one of the things he's working on see he, he thinks that the world will be controlled by whoever produces the most functional AI system, the fastest, because there'll be a first mover advantage. And one of the things Musk has been working on for a long time are distributed AI systems so that you'll have your own artificial intelligence to protect you against, well, let's say against Google's artificial intelligence, for starters. Yeah, or, or the CCP's artificial intelligence, because you can bet your hat they're working on that about as fast as they possibly can. You've heard it said, and it's correct, that the nation is terribly divided. But what you haven't heard is anything beyond the superficial. Why are we divided? They'll have you believe it's because of Trump or politics generally. It's more than that. And the reason this nation is so thoroughly divided is we're divided along those who really believe in the founding principles of our country, liberty, and when you look at the Bill of Rights, the issues related there, and those who want to change the country into something that is, well, for many of us, horrific. And that's the battle that's going on. And it goes well beyond politics. It goes right to the heart of the culture and so forth. In 2010, the great Thomas Sowell, one of our greatest thinkers, he wrote a book called The Dismantling of America. And he said in part at the beginning of the book, there are Americans alive at this moment who may experience the national equivalent of a perfect storm, either domestically or internationally or both. To have what is called a perfect storm, many dangerous forces must come together at the same time. Those dangerous forces have been building in the United States for at least half a century. 
By 2010, remember, he wrote it during the Obama presidency, increasing numbers of Americans were beginning to express fears that they were losing the country they grew up in and that they had hoped or perhaps too complacently assumed that they would be passing on to their children and their grandchildren. No one issue and no one administration in Washington has been enough to create a perfect storm for a great nation that has weathered many storms in its more than two centuries of existence. But the Roman Empire lasted many times longer and weathered many storms in its turbulent times, and yet it ultimately collapsed completely. It's been estimated that a thousand years passed before the standard of living in Europe rose again to the level it achieved in Roman times. The collapse of a civilization is not just the replacement of rulers or institutions with new rulers and new institutions. It is destruction of a whole way of life and the painful and sometimes pathetic attempts to begin rebuilding amid the ruins. The really painful surprise is that so many people base their hopes on Obama's words rather than on the record of his deeds. What that means is that even if we somehow manage to survive this man's reckless economic policies at home and his potentially fatal foreign policy actions and inactions, the gullibility and fecklessness of those voters who put him in the White House will still be there to be exploited by the next master of glib demagoguery and emotional images who can lead us into another vortex of dangers from which there is no guarantee that we will emerge as a free people or even as a viable society. Our concern is not with one man, but with a country, though history has shown repeatedly that one man in a key position at a crucial time can bring down a whole country in ruins. But history is just one of the things whose neglect has contributed toward the confluence of forces that can produce a perfect storm. When we look back at the decades-long erosions and distortions of our educational system, our legal system, and our political system, we must acknowledge the chilling fact that the kinds of dangers we face now are always inherent in these degenerating trends. Thomas Sowell, Dismantling America. And what is it that we're up against? Why is it that the country is so thoroughly divided? What can turn American against American? Or what can turn maybe half the nation or a third of a nation against its own country, against its own founding, its history, against its own progress, contributions to humanity? What is that force? Ludwig von Mises was one of the great economic philosophers of the last century. And he wrote a book called Marxism Unmasked, From Delusion to Destruction. And one of the things he said, perhaps more articulately than I, is that the philosophy of today is that of Karl Marx. He is the most powerful personality of our age. Karl Marx and the ideas of Karl Marx, ideas which he did not invent, develop, or improve, but which he combined into a system, are widely accepted today, even by many who emphatically declare that they are anti-communist and anti-Marxist. To a considerable extent, without knowing it, many people are philosophical Marxists, although they use different names for their philosophical ideas. And he's right. The ideas of Marx and the philosophy truly dominate our age. The interpretation of current events and the interpretation of history in popular books, as well as in philosophical writings, novels, plays, and so forth, are by and large Marxist, which is something I've been trying to explain myself and wrote an entire book on Marxist. Marxism, progressivism, 
the Democrat Party, when you listen to Schumer, when you listen to Pelosi, when you listen to AOC, when you listen to Bernie Sanders, do they sound like people who are talking in ways that we embrace the founding of the nation, about liberty, about property rights, individualism, unalienable rights? Or do they talk about class warfare, the rich versus the poor? Or do they talk about race, one race against another? Do they talk about the inequities and inequalities of the freest society on the face of the earth? These are Marxist ideologies, Americanized, that they're talking about. I will give you a perfect example right now. You see what's happening in our classrooms. You see the destruction of real education. You see the effort to say that parents have no say in education, that bureaucrats, that union members, that they have as much right to control your children and their minds as parents do. As parents don't have any say. Well, this is from the Communist Manifesto. This is from Marx. The selfish misconception that induces you to transform into eternal laws of nature. So he's attacking the Declaration of Independence specifically. And of reason, the social form springing from your present mode of production and form of property. Historical relations that rise and disappear in the progress of production. The misconception you share with every ruling class that has preceded you. What you see clearly in the case of ancient property, you admit in the case of feudal property, you are, of course, forbidden to admit in the case of your own bourgeois form of property. And what's he talking about? Bourgeoisie, the wealthier, the proletariat, what we would call uh, the middle class, even though Marx, in 35 years of writing, never describes what the middle class is. He never defines what a class is. But he was using it all the time, just as our Democrats do, just as Biden does and so forth. What's he talking about there? He's talking about property in your children. Because everything's about a dialectic system. He's talking about the property in your children. He says, abolition of the family, exclamation mark. Even the most radical flare-up at this infamous proposal of the communists. On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family based? On capital, on private gain. In its completely developed form, the family exists only among the bourgeoisie, the wealthy. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and public prostitution. So among the people, the family isn't strong. It's really not vibrant. It's just the wealthy, the ruling people, the management people, the executives. They're the ones that keep pushing this idea of a nuclear family. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. Do you, do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? See the point? To this crime, we plead guilty. But you will say we destroy the most hollowed of relations when we replace home education by social education. And your education is not that also social and determined by the social conditions under which you educate, by the intervention, direct or indirect, of society by means of schools, etc. The communists have not invented the intervention of society and education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. You want to know what's going on in the classrooms today? You have to understand Marxism. 
you have to understand what Mises said and what others have said. This is an intent to destroy the nuclear family because in order to indoctrinate your children as actors for the state, you've got to destroy the family. The greatest obstacles to advancing this so-called nirvana or paradise or utopia is the family and faith. Now, you had an overwhelming number of senators who voted the other week for what they call the Respect to Marriage Act or something to that effect. That law really had nothing to do with marriage. It should have been called the War on Religion Act because the goal of that law, as demonstrated by Mike Lee's amendment, the goal of that law is to prevent religious institutions, orthodox institutions, uh, Christian institutions, Muslim institutions, from teaching their faith in various uh, formats, hospitals, schools, think tanks, and so forth, and to create federal crimes so the federal government can impose its will. The war on the family is taking place every single day when you turn on TV and you watch the corporatists and their commercials and all the rest. But this is only one little piece of it. This is only one little piece of it. The war on American history. The history that brought us the freest nation on the face of the earth over time. Where Americans fought a civil war with over 700,000 casualties to end slavery and keep the union. No country's ever fought a civil war over slavery like that. We did. And all the efforts, economic, legal, and otherwise, to make amends for the past as if they never took place. Or a great nation that represents the unalienable rights of the individual, that rights come from God. That there is a natural law, a right and a wrong, a good and an evil. And that all our rights and the law don't come from the present day politicians and their supposed wisdom. This is a big difference between the Marxist ideology and the ideology that's built on thousands of years of human experience and which was heavily influenced in this country by Montesquieu and Locke, by Adams and so many others, Burke and the great founders of this country. That's the battle that's going on in this country. The dismantling of America, its culture in every respect, which has found a home in the Democrat Party, which has devoured the media, devoured our public schools, devoured our colleges and universities, and devoured our, our entertainment industry, and the rest of us who understand what a fantastic country this is. We're losing elections, and the media, and the pollsters, and the consultants, and yes, the Republican establishment are looking for easy answers. The problem is, they're the problem. They don't understand the depths of the problem that we face today. They don't want to address it. And their idea of successful politics is to meet halfway the party that is hell-bent on destroying our country. Want to see more Mark Levin? Go to levintv.com and subscribe now. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here with a quick take for you. Look, this just popped up, I have to respond to this. If you love, well, free speech, if you love everything that is about America, hey, you might not wanna tune into this because we're gonna be talking about how the FBI just jumped the shark. We've been tracking the Twitter gate. 
responses and everything that's been going on. Man, it is ugly. It is really ugly. Look what they're trying to normalize. Let's go here right now. This is incredible. This FBI statement on getting caught with their hands in the proverbial Twitter cookie jar. So right, now we, we are getting our first response from the FBI to the Twitter file dumps. The statement reads, the correspondence between the FBI and Twitter show nothing more than examples of our traditional long-standing and what? ongoing federal government and private sector engagements which involved numerous companies over multiple sectors and industries. As evidenced in the correspondence, the FBI provides critical information to the private sector in an effort to allow them to protect themselves and their customers. The men and women of the FBI work every day to protect the American public. It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency that Justin John all right uh, okay so let me let me formulate a careful response here so I think on balance we could look at this statement and think Christ FBI what the are you talking about that's not American this is the most bull piece of gaslighting I've ever seen in my whole life you're just trying to normalize the complete ruination of America, and that's what you stand for. So when you say protect the American public, you know what I do? I grab my wallet, because that's when politicians tell me we're about to get a little food here. So this is just complete bollocks. <clears throat> so let's deconstruct the statement more carefully. So let's take a quick peek at this and, and see what's in here, because um, I think there's some things we should look at. Uh, first, this idea that the correspondence between the FBI and Twitter shows nothing more and examples of our traditional, long-standing fascism, oops, I meant merger of corporate and state. Uh, this is bad. So here's somebody um, saying very, uh, Lil, uh, Lil PPY on Twitter asked very, I think appropriately, what misinformation, FBI, what, what are you talking about? Uh, the Twitter files simply reveal what happened. It's up to the public to make of it what they will. It's if the FBI was able to pinpoint what exactly was untrue or fake about the missing or the information, well, then they should do that. And I would completely agree with this approach. It's on the FBI. So uh, first question, how long, how long exactly has this been going on? Inquiring minds would like to know and exactly what is the nature of this relationship. And it did concern me to see that in Twitter, there were so many FBI agents had rotated into senior management positions at Twitter. I did not realize that the FBI was such an incredible business training ground. I mean, why go to Wharton? Why go to Cornell? Why go to Harvard Business School? Go to the FBI instead. You get paid and you get a key senior management position because obviously the FBI is where you go to get trained in senior business practices. I guess that's what we're supposed to make of this. So carrying on, um, just so noble. They've, they've involved in numerous companies over multiple sectors and industries, and now I need to know which ones. Don't you? Kind of need to know now. So maybe they shouldn't have revealed that so uh, brazenly like that. And uh, taking a peek at the rest of this, they say, um, uh, as evidenced in the correspondence between Twitter and the FBI, the FBI provides critical information to the private sector. Uh, indeed, they do. And um, if we want to look at that critical information that uh, to the private sector, mm, 
let's, why do they do that? Well, double grabbing my wallet because now they've mentioned the American public twice. That's a bad moment. They say here, why do they do this? Well, they do all of this, of course, in an effort to allow them to protect themselves and their customers for the corporations. The men and women of the FBI work every day to protect the American public. From what exactly? Well, we've uh, somebody put together a, a pretty handy thing here. They, they protected us from seeing anything that Hunter Biden was up to. Uh, they shadow banned conservatives, although they didn't call it shadow banning. They had other names for it. You know, they they um, detuned the propagation of, of them. You know, they wouldn't allow them to be seen. They, they very helpfully uh, helped me get people unfollowed from my account all the time. So that was what we saw there. The shadow ban conservatives. I'm not a conservative. Remember, I'm not left, right, up, down. And that was where the, they deleted satire accounts. They banned uh, Trump <laughs> from vacation. They said the laptop story was a hack. So apparently protecting the American people is the FBI's job, but they're protecting people from satire and electing candidates the FBI doesn't approve of. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm familiar enough with American law and the Constitution to realize that that is a complete foul and should not have happened. And in fact, there ought to be massive penalties for this. In fact, somebody needs to investigate the investigators in this story. But if you saw 1.5, trillion spending bill, FBI is getting pretty handsomely rewarded. New headquarters, lots of extra funding. So uh, just Washington, D.C. swamp saying thank you. Thank you for a job well done. All right. Um, and so, yeah, this is just this whole idea that protecting the American public from this is just not right. And it says, and this is the part I really object to. Maybe you caught some of my language before. It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public. Oh, no, there it is again, the American public. Misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency. But maybe there were other purposes. Maybe it's that we don't want to become China. Maybe it's we don't want this complete merger of state control of information, that there's state-approved information and state-disapproved misinformation. Maybe it's because, I don't know, this amount of gaslighting by the FBI required the sun of the seated president to have a board on Burisma, the Ukrainian gas company, because they needed a lot of extra light for this level of gaslighting. Takes a lot of gas, who knew, right? I don't know what's going on here, but this is really, really awful. And But the fact that it's normalized like that, they're trying to pass it off like, you know what, it's just a couple of cranks, some conspiracy theorists and others that would dare to be upset with this at all, because it's just part of our longstanding policy. This We've been doing this for a long time, really. Hmm. So this is obviously off the ranch. They've jumped the shark. The FBI has done something they really should not have done. And so a lot of people aren't buying it. This was just under one thread, not on a conservative thread whatsoever. Chris Buckley writing in here, nope, our country's going down the tubes and picking up speed. This is absolutely evidence of that. Johnny E writing here. So they're saying, the FBI is saying it's the same thing they do all the time and that they've been doing it other places as well. Got it. And Bonnie writing, the FBI is nothing more than the henchmen of the administration. Hey, we talk about this stuff all the time. We're really talking about here is the FBI has been conducting and been party to fifth 
generation warfare, which is a kind of warfare that's conducted against people and they don't even know it's happening, often can't attribute where the source of that is. Well, that's why we've been talking about that over here at Peak Prosperity, fifth generation warfare. You can see we've been talking as well about government and corporate censorship. These are just straight on the front page at Peak Prosperity this week and as well, Hey, if you don't know about it, that thing right there, the year in review by Dave Collum is the largest, most complete romp through the year anywhere you'll ever find. And again, we're very proud to offer that we have Dave Collum's year in review. It just got posted on the 22nd of December. So come on by and check that out. Free, free, free public. That's the best public information. You want to know what's happening. You want to read that or what just happened. At any rate, thanks for listening. Sorry for the tough language earlier, but I'm really upset by this and what the FBI is trying to do here. Thanks for listening. Have wonderful holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And uh, just peace and love to you and your family. All right. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. It is so good to be back here with you today. I am Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity. Today, we're going to be talking about, is China preparing for war? The evidence says yes right now, but what do we mean by war? There's a little bit of a definition there, but let's take a look at what I mean. So I came across this article in the Brownstone Institute. Great article, great site. I get a lot of my data from there. i read these things. This is by a Robin Corner of the title, uh, which I just uses the title of this video as well. Is China preparing for war? Question mark. Hmm, what could that mean? This is kind of interesting. So I gather data from wherever I find interesting data. Often it's at the edges. That's where you find things that are just developing. This is before things are proven. But of course, if you're good at it, you can figure out where the signals are coming from faster, sooner, better. And that's what I excel at. So if you like being early to stories, and I know you do, This is something that I want to bring to you now because there's clear signs right now, not imminent, not like tonight, but soon. Let's take a look at what I mean. This is a great anecdote. Well done, Robin Corner. He wrote here, quote, each year I have the pleasure of interviewing hundreds of applicants to the programs of an educational institute of which I am the academic dean. In in those interviews, excuse me, I ask questions that motivate prospective students, mostly age 15 to 18 years to share opinions that they care deeply about, but feel unable to discuss with their peers. I thus gain insight into a generation of whose experiences I, a Gen Xer, would otherwise be largely ignorant. So great frontline stuff here going after the students and asking them what's going on now. He happens to interview and talk to a lot of students coming from China. Now, as we all saw in COVID, hey, there were these early sort of videos that came out and there were you know people tipping over in streets and dead bodies everywhere and building 10,000 person hospitals and like a single weekend and stuff like that all of which turned out to have been actually well fool me once shame on you fool me twice won't get fooled again right so um to quote the famous uh, George W Bush so Robert Robin Corner here he is a British born citizen of the USA Currently serves as academic dean of the John Locke Institute. Got a couple of graduate degrees, physics and philosophy. So what did he say here? This is interesting. This is really fascinating. 
He wrote, this year, the most consequential discovery I made as a result of 700 such interviews concerned what I now believe may be the greatest danger facing the world. Subsequent events have strengthened my conclusion. Whereas extraordinary censorship has been the norm in China for many years, 2022 was the first year in which a large proportion of Chinese interviewees shared with me their concern about the ubiquity of specifically nationalistic propaganda and the complete removal of contrary content in all domains in their country. Ooh, sounds a little bit like Twitter pre-Elon as it concerns things like, oh, I don't know, uh, Dwizabin, Dwizabin 1 and 2. If you don't know what those mean, those are my code words for things which shall not be named. Uh, in this case, drugs which shall not be named. Dwizabin is how I pronounce that acronym. So at any rate, I, I totally sympathize. I know what it's like to live under a repressive authoritarian regime where the information is censored and controlled and shaped. So, have my sympathy. Now, carrying on, in the underlying part there, quote, an example cited by many Chinese applicants is the wholesale rewriting of history textbooks to delete any references to events that cannot be redwashed, my word, to fit a century of humiliation narrative. I'll get to that in a second. I was repeatedly told that the average Chinese person is now exposed to no other historical perspective. Hmm. So if you get out of the country, you might see some of this more. The article goes into how actually travels being more and more limited, but obviously the great mass of people in any country never get out of the country at all. So they wouldn't know anything other than the dominant narrative which is being beamed to them all the time about this century of humiliation. So um, what is that century of humiliation? That was from 1839 to 1849. This is a really nice slide deck about it down there. Um, it comes to us uh, from USC. And uh, it's kind of, it's fascinating, but they're in their century of humiliation. Number one, the Opium Wars, that was when they were conducted. Britain had a trade deficit with China. They liked all their like silken brocade fabrics and also they had a trade deficit. That means that their gold and silver was ending up in China. What do you do about that, you know? Well, they decided to sell opium after 1800 to balance the accounts. China opposed the opium though. They're like, no, this isn't good for our people. So Britain attacked it in 1841. The defeat of China in the 1841 to 1860 opium wars led to 70 foreign treaty ports. Like, hey, we're coming in, we got a port here. And of course, not to their advantage, very asymmetrical, very bad deals, if you can call them deals at all. And, you know, we had the United States in on that and, um, you know, all sorts of countries were actually part of that. So that was their century of humiliation. And of course, you think they remember that still? You think 1949, you think this is still part of their memory set, actually we could go more, we could go deeper than this and closer in time and we could find that there's been a lot of humiliation and that's no bueno. And of course, nobody actually likes to be humiliated, but particularly I think China is gonna say no more to that. So this is what we're talking about with the century of humiliation. Now, this is the kind of stuff that I do and I surface data like this. So, hey, I'm gonna put on my uh, sponsor hat for just a second and tell you about this incredible website my website. Uh, we have great people coming here. This is our resilience community right here. If you want to become resilient, if you're at all concerned about where things are going. In fact, please, in the comments below, please tell me, I want to know, what are you concerned about? Are you even worried about China's uh, you know, imminent war posture? Are you concerned about COVID still? What are you actually concerned about? Because I always want to know. I read the comments, as you'll see. I'll show you some coming up soon. 
I like to know what you think. But if you want to know what I really think, I, back here at the website, I get to say what I really think about stuff. And that's really important because there are things in the censorship world today I can't still say. But if you come in here and you become a Peak Insider, you will get up to 50% off on sweet, sweet gear like this uh, at our website. So, hey, that's what we do. I like people to be able to identify each other. I've been identified with this in airports. Um, it's fun, fun stuff. So come on by, check out uh, our resilience community if you're concerned about being resilient. So uh, why do people join our site? They join because they like to learn from each other. Mark 100K writing here, post like yours, commenting to another commenter, is yet another reason why I subscribe to Peak Prosperity. Access to others struggling to make sense of our shared reality in this short walk. Thank you. This is kind of comments we have. We have a civil, mature, intelligent community trying to figure out what's going on in the world as well. People sometimes join because they like to know when to act. Uh, Rick was writing about energy. Hey, your message has accelerated me installing solar and batteries and a nat gas generator, and then buy an electric car as a backup. We love information that leads to effective action and we support each other around that. That's another reason people come to the website. And finally, they really just, uh, we, we're, hey, it's all about integrity. We are seeing clearly that the world is breaking into two separate camps right now. Those who seem to lack all integrity, they don't care who they harm in the pursuit of ego, greed, and all that other stuff. And then there are people who still care. They have morals. We care about things like beauty, truth, love, and being the best people we can be, learning, growing, all of that. So. If you're that kind of person, you're going to love the community we have over there and as well. So this person, uh, Dasan Schenkt, writing, I was born into post-Soviet collapse Russia, and I know what a decayed society and culture looks like. People in the West do not understand how good they have it, nor how fragile all of it is. I see a lot of people and organizations stuck in mental traps and engaging in an intellectual dishonesty to themselves and to others. Chris cuts through all of that on his way to answers based on the available evidence. So if you want to come on by and you want to join the site, that's fantastic. As I always say, come for the information. Take a few actions to become resilient, but stay for the awesome tribe we have. Now, back to our story. Here's the thing. It's not just one thing to erase your history and whoop people up about your century of humiliation. The first step in war, always, is dehumanization. Now, I wrote a bunch of pieces back in, uh, what was it, 2000. 14, 15-ish, I think, might have been 2016. I'll have to look back, but it was around North Korea. And what I noted was this preponderance of, look at these articles like this one here coming out, <clears throat> atrocities under Kim Jong-un, indoctrination, prison gulags, you know, executions. We have that one from 2012, North Korea, the world's principal violator of responsibility to protect prisoners and everything. The prison state known as North Korea, 2014. We were suddenly, we were bombarded with all these messages about Korean prison guards doing awful things to women prisoners, to puppies. I mean, it was just like one of these things. And I look at that and I know that these stories, even if they're true, there's a reason they're coming out now. So the context of what I'm seeing in the world isn't always important as how you think about it. So when I was reading all of these articles about what North Korean prison guards are doing, what awful human beings they were, that was my clue to know that the United States or some other major power was probably my, the United States was thinking about hey, we might have to attack these people. So we've got to soften the territory. We've got to conduct a little bit of the psyops here, make sure that our people in our country would be 
you know, down for that sort of action. I wrote all that, nothing really happened. I was at an event where a gentleman comes up to me. He says, hey, can we talk off to the side? This was at a big investment conference. We go over to the side. This gentleman, if you're watching, hey, uh, he had been actually very high up in the military chain of command and said, hey, I was reading your articles at the time. You have no idea how close you were. We had aircraft carrier groups at the time you were writing those articles about North Korea spooled up hot and ready right off the coast because of some things going on. He said, how did you know? I said, well, because you should see the articles that were coming out in the newspapers. It was very obvious what was happening. And then the articles come and, you know, look at this. Like everybody's talking about what awful things are going on in North Korea. Have you read about North Korea in like the last year? Probably you haven't read anything except every so often, um, you know, the leader of uh, Best Korea, as it's called, shoots a missile into the sea because they don't like the sea for some reason. They're very angry with the sea. But anyway, that's it. Uh, You won't hear about atrocities because they're not on the hot seat. But, you know, this was big. And, you know, we had here the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights is busy engaging in this whole crimes against humanity piece here against North Korea. Uh, Time magazine wrote worse than Nazi camps. That's how bad it is. (laughs) They were worse than Nazi camps. New report details, gruesome crimes against humanity at North Korean prisons and when was that one? That was 2017. So that was right in that time frame where there was a lot of attention Worse, you know, you can tell. Look at that satellite photo. Um, but anyway, I'm joking. But listen, if there are atrocities, there are not, as I'm sure there are, but there are atrocities all over the place because humans, right? So when you watch them, though, this is how I decode the news. When you see these dehumanization efforts come forward, that's when you know the leadership of that country is doing a little shuck and jive. They're getting ready to lay the territory to make it okay for them to attack, or even better yet, for the citizens to rise up and demand that this leader be executed or that country be attacked. Um, Remember this? This was the Saddam Saddam Hussein edition, right? Back in 2003, tales of Saddam's brutality coming out of the White House directly. They're talking of brutality, torture, fear, death, right? So this is Saddam's brutality. And of course, obviously what happened next was no less brutal for about a million Iraqis who didn't survive the whole shocking on and subsequent campaign, right? But this was how it goes. When you see this dehumanization, you know what's about to happen and where we're going in this story. How about the Libya edition? Gaddafi, we see here in uh, that 1702, so that's February 17, 2011, Gaddafi's brutal four decades in power, writing in France, Agence, Agence Presse France, uh, is writing about this. So the French are all getting whooped up about what a brutal guy Gaddafi is. Um, whole story there I don't have time to get into, but honestly, if you compare pre-Gaddafi being taken out to post, there was nothing at all brutal about him. It was a wonderful, peaceful country compared to the absolute hellhole it's become ever since NATO got involved and bombed him out of existence so that, the, well, they bombed his, his convoy so the rebels could capture him. Now, here are those, though. Look, Muammar Gaddafi, war crimes files revealed. So this was from June of 2011. They're beating that drum of dehumanization. What an awful, terrible person this is. He commits war crimes. It's usually in that, you know, they, they torture, they rape, they commit war crimes, they kick puppies, you know, you can, all those things to make this a very, very bad person. And then finally, we have the BBC part of this, Gaddafi's quixotic and brutal rule. This is October 20th, 2011. I'm going to call that date out directly because 
it was October 21st that NATO struck a convoy of vehicles uh, on, and they said here, well, you know, uh, we struck the 11 vehicles in an armored convoy that was speeding the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi out of his hometown. Um, although NATO didn't know at the time that he was in that convoy, uh, they said in a statement on Friday. It later came out that not only did they know he was there, but they had radioed to the rebels in the area that they were going to stop this convoy and that they you know, bombed the, the vehicles at the front and the back and then radioed the position. And so not entirely true, but this is how it goes. The first thing you got to do, though, is you got to make him a very, very bad guy. And then you do this. And so this is just something, a set of signals I've learned to read over the years. So why, you know, that's why all of this stands out to me, because I, I recognize this. This is typical, normal behavior, right? Because the common people, we never want war. Kind of have to be convinced that it's the right thing. And one of the convincing sets is you talk about the great century of humiliation. You talk about what a bad person it is that you're up against. You know, you talk about how evil they are, all of that stuff. And when you have those fractures and divisions created and they're strong enough, then you've made the case for war the casus belli, right? So um, here's some data, though, that goes beyond what just China is doing in terms of starting to ring fence their intellectual thought processes around the century of humiliation. We see here, too, in March of 2022, they started really, it was noted like, hey, China's really buying up a lot of food, right? And foodstuffs, corn and soybeans in this case. Um, here, even in December 19th of this year, pretty recent, uh, China buys another million tons of corn, is, and they keep tagging everything on the Ukraine war, like maybe that's the reason. Um, but China's busy stockpiling food, and um, uh, as well, I got to say, you know, um, for your comments, I was really, you know, where do I go with this situation? What do I want to talk about here? Mio wrote here, um, you're marching through this storm like a champion. I have to say thanks for all your hard work, clear explanations. Uh, that's great. One of the clearest analyses of the current economic situation I've heard. Please show GDP versus oil consumption chart to every politician that wants to ban new oil rigs in the U.S. And I put those up there because those were in response to last week's piece, which was the vital connection between oil and the economy. We got to talk about this oil thing again, because if you understand where the energy part of the story is going, then you can build onto this case that I'm making today. So last week's piece around the vital connection between oil and the economy, and trust me, China's not confused about that connection. Only here in the US people seem a little, we leadership seems a little foggy on the whole connection. They're not, I built the case last week that oil and economy are linked, China gets it, so now we have to understand what China's doing in the context of their own oil provisionings. Remember, the EU didn't do anything about provisioning themselves before they got into a war against their major supplier of energy. Um, strategically, not the smartest thing I've ever seen. So what's going on in, with respect to China and oil reserves now? If you've watched last week's piece, you have the context to understand why this is actually big news. That's what I do. I'm a dot connector. This comes to us from February of 2022. It's in Reuters. They write exclusive. China boosts oil reserves, ignoring U.S. push for global release. The U.S. is busy dishoarding its strategic petroleum reserve, the SPR, dishoarding, meaning we're selling it, coming out of the ground and out it goes. Some of it went to China. China was like, thank you very much. We'll take another million barrels per day, right? They were taking a lot of it. Um, and, uh, quote, crude oil inventories in China are up roughly 30 million barrels since mid-November. And look at that down there. 
at 950 million barrels. That's the total crude oil inventory in February. That's what China was up to. Carrying on, meanwhile, in the United States, we were over here at 650 million barrels because that's 0.65 billion. And now down here at 382 at last count. And a lot of that's called light, sweet, crude. It's not actually the stuff our refineries are most excited to have. So that's a very, very big difference between two separate countries. China piling up food and energy. United States selling food, disordering its energy. Two totally different strategies for how to be prepared for the future. I believe in being prepared, so I think you know how I feel about that. Um, this is absolutely not intelligent. But China actually has a huge weakness in this story, and it's called the Malacca Strait. And the problem with it is it's a very tiny little strait. It's tiny. It's a little place, and almost all of their oil and virtually all of their seabound oil comes through that little tiny strait. Could that be blockaded? Easy. A couple of subs parked off there and nothing's getting through, right? So they have a problem on their hands, but if you see here, they've started to correct this a little bit than they have here. Uh, some things now coming straight from Russia. And so China actually has quite a bit of connections to Russia through Kazakhstan. It actually has pipelines that are being built for gas, for oil, for all of those things being able to come from Russia directly, which solves a little bit of this weakness, but not all of it. Now, how are they remedying that weakness? Well, they're importing more and more and more Russian oil. It's hitting a, uh, hit a record back here in June. Um, and as well, just even more recently in September in rig zone, we find that from June to August, Russia was China's largest source of crude imports now averaging 1.8 million barrels per day with 1.6 from Saudi Arabia. Real surprise to me to see Russia overtaking Saudi Arabia in that regard. This will only get more pronounced now that the G7 has decided that Russia can't sell its oil to anybody except for $60 a barrel or less, and Russia has the option to just sell it to China. And of course, China is taking no position in terms of saying, you know, Russia's uh, actions in Ukraine make it a pariah. Uh, China's perfectly happy to do business with anybody who wants to do business. Now, interestingly, I actually served on a UN panel for a while. I was invited. I thought, hey, let's go check this out. And it's on sustainable development. And our job on the panel was to actually hand out money, which is fun, right? There was a, a rich businessman from Hong Kong had put up a million dollar per year prize to be handed to somebody doing really cool work in the space of alternative energy, right? So these were like little solar chargers for cell phones that went into the bush of Africa, things like that. Um, so it was fun, but what was fun for me was who else was on there? It was like, I have no idea how I got invited onto that because the other people on there were super senior people at Chinese oil firms, the International Energy Agency, former presidents of, of uh, international oil companies, et cetera, and then me. But I got to talk to these people, and of the people there who are very high up in Chinese politics, they were really clear about this. Now, this was, what, four or five years ago now, but they were very clear, and they said, look, we know that the world future is going to be dominated by who has access to resources. They're busy developing access to resources. I said, well, you know, yeah, but, you know, the United States is kind of a powerful military. And they, th this gentleman just scoffed and said, oh, guys, Chris, the business of China's business, the business of the United States is war. We make friends. We have magic checkbook diplomacy. We'll go around, we'll buy our way in, and we will have a shot at these resources. By the way, some of them you cannot protect by military might. There's not a chance in the world that, you know, if a big kinetic breakout of war breaks out, 
the chance of oil traveling over the sea in these big, slow, leaky, potentially leaky, potentially explosive, potential environmental disaster if the hull gets breached, oil container ships, the very large crude containers, at zero. Like, that, that won't happen. Like, those things will stop. So that'll just, everything changes, right? So at any rate, if we look here, we also see that down below, China's largest crude import source uh, from Saudi Arabia decreased 9% in the June to August period compared with the three months before the invasion. In imports from Iraq, China's third most common source of crude imports decreased 27% in the same period. In contrast, imports from Russia increased by 7%. So you can clearly see the tail here. And the tail is one of that I believe is told by this map. And that's exactly what I would be doing if I were at all concerned about my seaborne access to oil being compromised in any way, shape, or form, which it immediately would be if anything got kinetic. And I'd be looking for more and more ways to bring oil into my country if I was China through pipelines and through other things that would be much more difficult to disrupt than a seaborne lane. All right, carrying on. So is that all? Well, no, actually we have this from November where Xi Jinping uh, tells China's army to focus on preparation for war. Here he is looking um, pretty, pretty snappy in his fatigues, camo fatigues. And he wrote here, quote, um, he said here, I'm just quoting now from the Guardian article, quote, Xi Jinping has told the People's Liberation Army to focus all its energy on fighting in preparation for war. A Chinese Communist Party mouthpieces reported pictures of Xi who recently secured a third term as party leader in his army uniform during a visit to a command center featured prominently on the front page of the People's Daily on Wednesday. Xi said the army must comprehensively strengthen military training in preparation for war. Having warned at a recent party congress of dangerous storms on the horizon. What dangerous storms would those be? What is this all about? So um, this is actually getting fairly interesting now. And I tend to take people at their word. So, you know, I'm that guy, right? If somebody says they're going to do something and it happens, I'm, I don't know. Maybe they did it, right? So let's carry on with this particular story. Um, this is also still in that same Guardian article I was just quoting from. And I need to know, is this right? Quote, he's sending a message to the United States and Taiwan, says Willie Lam, a senior fellow at the Washington-based Jamestown Foundation. Although China's military strength was not yet at a par with the U.S., Xi's decision-making was not always based on rational calculation, he said. Ooh, you hear that? That guy's kind of a little bit of a nut. <laughs> That's not actually anything that I've heard before. I always thought he was pretty rational, but maybe Willie Lam knows more than me uh, about this, uh, or maybe this is just propaganda that's meant to shape the narrative. Who knows? Xi made a veiled attack on the U.S.'s increasingly explicit support for Taipei, Taiwan, at the 20th Party Congress, which in concluded in Beijing last month, blaming foreign interference for exacerbating tensions. Foreign interference. Now, remember where we started all this with this idea that China is busy controlling the narrative, controlling the, the, the flow of people into and out of its country, controlling the idea that they had a century of humiliation at the hands of foreigners. So, so the century of humiliation is all about foreign interference. And now they're raising that dog whistle term again, like, hey, we don't like the foreign interference. Now you hear that and you go, oh yeah, they don't like foreign interference. But inside China, that probably lands a lot differently, probably lands a lot harder.
if particularly you've been reading about how bad this foreign interference has been and how much face the country lost and how humiliating it was. And it was not good, right? It's not a good piece of history. So they got that going for them. Now, it's just like if you were in the United States and you just all you heard all the time was your national state-sponsored media telling you how bad Putin is all the time and how he's you know the worst person ever and all of that. Eventually, you might begin to believe that that's actually the case. Don't forget, you were also supposed to believe the same thing was true about North Korea recently and Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi and I could go on and on and on. It's just how the game works. Okay, so let's look at this again. Is Willie Lamb right about saying here that it might just be, you know, he's just sending a message, although it's maybe not entirely rational. You know, know, maybe he's just a nut. Um, This was an interesting article here in The Diplomat and the person here wrote, said China's never again mentality, Western analysts often overlook how much of China's modern day policy is driven by the collective trauma of its colonial past. Quote, understanding the factors behind China's grand strategy often provides a daunting and elusive task for Western analysts studying the emerging Asian superpower. An often overlooked aspect of Beijing's collective mentality is that China is the first power to challenge the United States that truly rose from its post-colonial past. While analysts often cite the century of humiliation as a driving force in Beijing's policies, they too often ignore exactly how this collective trauma manifests itself in China's never again mentality. Okay. So they say you really shouldn't overlook this mentality. Look at all these people lined up here for the Nanjing, Nanjing uh, Massacre Memorial and uh, the uh, Japanese in Nanjing, not cool. And, but clearly we have a lot of young people here that are lined up and there's a, there's a big push here to, to remember this particular event. And that's how it goes. So let me just, let's just build this thought out just a little bit. Cause I, I you know, again, I'm not a Chinese Sino expert, I, but I do think that we just need to have a little bit of an appreciation for what might be going on here because not least of which is the so-called leaders of the Western world seem to have lost their collective minds. They don't understand risk reward anymore. They lost that on medical uh, treatments. They've lost it around like engaging other nuclear superpowers. So the potential here is that we're actually being led by people who are just dummies or ideologues or dangerous neocons or something. They're just people who, who frankly don't quite understand how the world works. And you kind of know this is the case when you see Henry Kissinger coming out and saying, hey, maybe we should like get some negotiations going over here in, the, in this thing. When Henry Kissinger is telling you you've gone too far, you've gone too far. Um, trust me on that one. So this is what China has not forgotten. Let, let's talk about these American humiliations. So this here coming out of, I guess, UNLV from that same link I gave you before down here. Um, <clears throat> so what were they? So Americans joined the opium trade right after 1776, 1844. U.S.-China treaty allowed five treaty ports, uh, U.S. missionaries, extraterritoriality. Missionary is very important. At that time, China believed that supreme, uh, supreme authority came through the emperor, right, in the dynasty. And the missionaries are over there going, eh, no, it actually comes from this thing called God, right? And, and so that was a, a, to accept missionaries was actually a huge affront. So that's a lot packed into that word. Uh, 1882 to 43, the China, Chinese Exclusion Act banned Chinese immigration to the U.S. Hmm. 1900 1901, U.S. Marines invaded Beijing to fight the Boxer Rebellion, which was against Western imperialism. 
1906 to 43, the U.S. court for China in Shanghai had jurisdiction in civil and criminal matters. And at the 1918 Treaty of Versailles, German concessions in China given to Japan, um, hmm, creating the May 4th movement. So, so lots and lots of things. And by the way, this bullet list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And they remember all that and they're taught about it. And so this is why we see, so when we see something like this, uh, it's probably more about China remembering its history than Willie Lamb here trying to convince us that it's just, that maybe the guy's just a nut, you know, not always rational. Um, so at any rate, let's finish this out now. And uh, we're seeing things like this now are showing up. Uh, never forget the national humiliation. Obviously you got school children here, never, rem never forgetting. Um, we have this example here, we, hey, nice QR code. So you can never forget the national humiliation and maybe find some more content there. And what else we got here? Um, yeah, it, it keep going on and on. But at any rate, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about now at Peak Prosperity. I gotta go now, I'm gonna go with my subscribers. We're gonna talk about part two of this, which is about this fifth generation warfare that's absolutely underway. And I do believe uh, the comment that came through YouTube, I found it there, Fortitude of the Sun, triple six, it says there's absolutely no way for governments to handle any kind of challenges like we see in the near future with the amount of care that would be sensible. And that's absolutely the case. So if you're interested in hearing what I think about that, you gotta come on down, you're gonna have to subscribe because that's how we keep the trolls out, that's how we keep the bots out, that's how we keep the conversation civil, and that's how you know I can speak my actual mind. So for now, I just need you to be aware, not super urgent, not like tonight, tomorrow, you know, but China is definitely doing what I consider to be the sensible early precautionary steps for what you would do if you were going to potentially get in a war. You get your people prepared for it, you stock up on the food, and you stock up on the fuel. I don't know why Europe didn't do any of that stuff, kind of weird, but perhaps their leadership isn't quite up to the task, which is actually fortitude of the sun's comment here is one I believe in, which is that, well, all the signs I have say that the countries I, I, the country I live in, the other countries of people who tend to follow my work, we're not led by people who have our best interests at heart. And let's just admit something, they don't know what they're doing. Or if they do, then they're criminally treasonous. I don't know which is worse. Are they just completely inept or are they being intentionally destructive? I don't know which way it falls, but either way, we have to understand the lay of the land, have the appropriate context so that we can begin to take the appropriate actions so that we can be resilient. And the best way to be resilient is to be within and among like-minded people. That's your tribe. So that's what we do at Peak Prosperity. We gather a tribe of people. If you wanna hear more analysis like this, come on by. Hey, I'm there all week. I'm there every week. So thanks for listening today. Can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. Let me know what comments you want me to be reading in the future and talking about. And um, hey, maybe I'll get to them. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.